You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. For this week's edition of Just Ask the Press, as we take a look at the weekend mm. review of the all-wonderful news that's happened this week, uh, joining me, as always, is editor-at-large from CQ Row called John T. Bennett and former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. This week, we're going to unpack the uh, campaign for president that has uh, began, oddly enough, on January 6th. Uh, John's going to outline the first real scandal of the Biden administration. There is an immunity agreement that's going to be heard in court on Tuesday when it comes to Donald Trump. Uh, The Supreme Court is taking up the Donald Trump ballot case issue, and we are one week from the Iowa caucuses, believe it or not. And breaking this morning on a Sunday morning, the Biden administration is going to have to come to terms with what everyone is now agreed upon is a crisis on the U.S. border. So the administration is going to uh, break with itself and try to find common ground with the Republicans as we go forward this week. So stick around. We'll take a few short break. Wait, one short break, and we'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with the Week in Review, Just Ask the Press. With me, as always, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, John T. Bennett. John T., I love it. John T., I, I keep thinking of a guitar player, John, whenever I think of that. There was a guy I played with when I was a kid. Called himself Johnny T. But that's, Anyway, so we're going to start out talking about the campaign, the campaign for president is kicked off this week and uh, both uh, former president Donald Trump and current president Joe Biden have used the January 6th insurrection as a kicking off point for their campaigns. Now, Biden, sticking close to reality, has said that it is a challenge and that Donald Trump is a huge challenge to democracy and that he was behind the January 6th insurrection and that democracy itself is on the ballot this November. Meanwhile, former President Trump has said that it's, in fact, Biden who's the challenge to democracy, and that the people that have been jailed in the insurrection are hostages and they should be freed. And that was echoed on um, a Sunday show with Kristen Welker, one of our former colleagues from the White House who was on Meet the Press, and Talking to uh, Elise Stefanik, she said that uh, representative Elise Stefanik, who says that, you know, she agreed with Trump and that these people are hostages and she wouldn't even agree point blank. And a question that echoed when I asked President Trump, then President Trump, she's not even going to commit to a peaceful transfer of power in 2024. So there are the two campaigns in a nutshell, both of them using January 6th as a marketing point for their own candidacy and so with that i'll start with michael does it does any of this matter to anyone other than the candidates it matters to everybody i would think doesn't it i would hope (laughs) thanks michael for that (laughs) well you know this is a this is a consequential election and uh, as was the case in 2020, there really are two starkly different mm. theories of government um, that'll be on the ballot if it's Biden versus versus Trump. Yeah, and you can't not downplay the significance of that distinction, whether you like Biden or not, um, whether you like Trump or not. They represent two diametrically opposite views of how our government should function and and the rights and responsibilities of the citizens of the United States. And so I think it is 
of critical importance what's going on now. <clears throat> and the problem that Biden has different than what he had previously was in the last campaign, he was running on democracy versus authoritarianism. And I'm the person who will save uh, our democracy. Now he's trying to run on that same theme, but he's weighted down by his administration's unpopularity. Fair or not, that unpopularity is still an albatross. And so you have to ask, will voters say democracy versus no democracy? I'll still go with democracy, even if it's Joe Biden, who is the um, torchbearer of of democracy, or will they say, you know what, enough of this democracy stuff or enough of this Biden policy stuff, and I'll take my chance that, that Trump is just being, you know, Trump, and that when it comes down to governing, he'll stay on the rails. That's a big gamble. Yeah, I, it is a huge gamble. I, I point that, I mean, he's, he's he you know, He's rolling. He's rolling the dice on this one, and I, I said, I hope he doesn't crap out because uh, John, you and I were there. I mean, I I get so tired of people telling me, you know, uh, there's hours of videotape that shows that these people were doing nothing, and I remind them that big deal. There were there's probably videotape of you know the Manson family walking through Sharon Tate's neighborhood. They they weren't indicted for that. They weren't prosecuted for that. They were prosecuted for the actions that they took, and those are well documented. Do facts matter anymore, John? No, they don't matter as much as, or or maybe, maybe they don't matter as much as they used to. Uh, perception, I was just talking about this last evening. Uh, perception matters the most right now, and it's everyone's perception of those facts and the ability of of, of politicians and candidates to shape those perceptions and exploit those. And another problem. Uh, for for President Biden is Donald Trump is the master at shaping and exploiting perceptions. And, you know, it, the margin was 7 million votes uh, in those six states that mattered. The margin was, you know, 180 something thousand. That's not a lot of people that you no. that that Trump needs to sway uh, to close that to close that margin. Um, and, and Michael's right about the Biden campaign's approach. I was on a call uh, last week with some Biden campaign officials and, 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 and Michael nailed it there. It is a gamble, but to them, it's a strategy of, and they said this, one of the officials said when voter voters aren't paying close attention right now. And when they get closer to a point in the fall, when they have to make a decision, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, we feel strongly that they'll choose Joe Biden. I, I'm not convinced. I, I sat right here where I am. I was listening to the call right in this very spot. And and I just, my eyebrows went up. And, you know, we've all suspected that the campaign doesn't really have a presence. It's not much of anything but a fundraising mechanism right now. And that's fine. That part's fine because you need that. You have to raise a lot of money to be president. Um, it's very expensive. So they're, they are good at that, but they don't respond in real time. They're not agile and quick and the message, what's the message? Um, it's just, there's a lot of reasons for them to be worried. I shared with you guys a very good Washington Post article uh, that went up Saturday morning. Um, former President Barack Obama went not only to Biden aides and campaign officials, but the president himself. Oh, yeah. Urging him to bolster the campaign, be more agile. You know, they've got four, five, six people plus the president at times involved in, you know, small and medium decisions. And Obama trying to get across to, to the Biden camp that, you know, things move a lot faster now. And especially with Trump, that, you know, the campaign just needs to. You know, you don't need two days to respond to something. You need about 20 minutes and yeah. and to consolidate that decision making tree and empower the campaign. You know, right now you have the campaign um, campaign managers calling the White House um, to to figure out, you know, how they're going to respond or what they're going to say about this or that. And, you know, just regular campaign decisions. 
and so the campaign's being run out of the West Wing, and that's that's not really a model that has worked in the modern era. And that's what Obama is trying to tell them: is look at my 2012 uh, re-election campaign. You know, David Plouffe, uh, David Axelrod, and others left the White House to focus on the re-elect, and that's not that's not happening right now. And um, I think there are a lot, and you also get in that Washington Post article by uh, Tyler Pager, very, very good reporter, very uh, solid article. These old wounds and these grudges from the Biden team and the Obama, the old Obama team, and it stems from Barack Obama at the time, President Obama, and uh, the twenties in the run up to the twenty sixteen election cycle, urging Joe Biden to not run. And then aggressively backing Hillary Clinton, who Obama came to really respect when they worked together as Secretary of State. And the Biden people, as as Tyler wrote in his story, they bitingly point out that Obama urged Joe to not run, and then Hillary lost to Trump. And this is a grudge that is not going away, and it is a big, big problem because it, you know, you can tell where most of this story came from, um, but... That doesn't mean it. The fact that it seems like Obama's camp might have planted this or 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 worked with the you know, reached out to the reporter. Obama does make some good points, but if those grudges are going to get in the way, the Biden camp's not going to listen to the advice, even if it's right, because that would mean Obama's right. So this this moment feels different. You know, the poll numbers for Biden have been bad for a long time. Trump never really gets dinged by any of, of his legal troubles or anything he says. And, and and Biden just and he's a sitting president. So you do expect some of that on the economy. He's going to get blamed for that. Um, wars aren't going that great. So he's always going to get blamed. But this moment feels more dire for Biden. And that's what that's what Obama is trying to get through to them. But you've got this decade plus grudge between these people and they need they're going to have to get on the same page yeah can i ask a question brian sure uh, of you two um reporters on on the on the call here um i read an article which asked the question how does the press how should the press cover the trump campaign at this point remember back in 16 they were criticized the press was for covering every single word out of his mouth, giving him what they called free airtime, uh, and it was uh, badly done. Now they don't really cover him all that much, and he's out on the um, campaign trail saying some outrageous things that seem to be going a bit under the radar. His, his so his inflammatory rhetoric and some of the more outlandish things that he says doesn't seem to be um, making its way into daily reporting. So people don't understand, um, you know, sort of what he, what he represents and what he, what he's, you know, what the plat, what his platform is um, that he's running on. So how, how do you balance that not giving him too much space versus not letting him sort of get away with, you know, saying these things and not having anyone call him on it. Well, I, as an editor, I would say to my reporter, cover it, come back, write the story, or if you're on television, get the sound bites and we'll decide. It has to be covered because the man's running for president. But you do not have to cover everything that he does. But the more outlandish things and the things that really call into question his devotion to the, the Constitution needs to be. And for me, I, I think my colleagues in the press are um, are a little skittish, and it makes my head hurt because they've been accused of uh, equivocation. You know, giving both sides to the you know it it it's almost as if you're saying there's another side to the Holocaust. Look, there's no other side to the insurrection. It happened, and it's been repeated time and time again that it happened, and the facts show that it happened. Donald Trump goes out and says it didn't happen, and we re report on that. All right, that's been reported on. Now, Donald Trump saying he's got, that they're hostages and they're going to free him, that's the news. And that's what you have, you know, news is new. That's that's the, the part of it. Quit telling me the history and quit trying to 
even hand everything. I, I get tired of the, you know, of of that. There, look, every every president deserves criticism. Not every president deserves the same criticism. Donald Trump deserves different criticism because he's far and away the most dangerous man who's ever set foot on this planet to run for president. You know, I I I can't. There's no equivocation. He's a liar. We need to call out his lies. John, I'll, I'll give you let you hop in on that. Sure. Yeah, Michael, well, I can just tell you my approach. And, you know, I listened to I needed to um, listen to one of his rallies this weekend for something that I'm working on. And so Friday night, the first of the two rallies, uh, I listened to most of it. And and my approach is like Brian alluded to there is I'm trying to the best you can. <laughs> um, I'm trying to pull out the clues that he's giving us about a second term, how he would, yeah, how he would act and govern and, you know, use DOJ. You know, I'm not, I'm not concerned this time around about his nickname for Ron DeSantis or no, he's making fun of Nancy Pelosi or, or, you know, that all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not focused on that. Like I was, you know, it, especially 2015, 2016. Uh, so I'm trying to pull, yeah, I'm trying to pull out what he's telling us about how he sees his second term. Yeah, and what what you're doing, by the way, is called uh, beat coverage. <laughs> it's oh. it's woefully lacking in today's uh, journalism world. People with experience who understand nuance covering the more difficult uh, topics and the more difficult beats. I mean, here's the thing that every I I know we all know Alice Stewart. She's a veteran Republican strategist. She told the AP this week that Trump voters are going to continue to stand with Trump because, quote, a lot of Republican voters don't love January 6th, but they're not obsessed about it either. They're giving him a, a, a pass so Republican voters can hold two, she says consecutive, I say contrary or contradictory uh, thoughts in their head and say January 6th wasn't great, but it doesn't affect my bottom line with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so we, it for there's that. So that presents a challenge to reporters to parse it correctly, to understand his threat against the Constitution. And at the same time, alluding to what you were talking about earlier, Michael and John, Biden's campaign strategy, while it's got to include the insurrection, you have to include it, it's got to include something more than that if, if they hope to get some of these people that are on the fence. Because this you hear and see so much that it just kind of goes everybody, over everybody's head or blows through them at this point. And that's mm -hmm. the biggest challenge that we face is making sure that we that we cover it accurately and and deeply enough for uh you know the American public to at least understand the factual information. But right now we fail because there are millions of people in this country and I was there. I I have no I'm not partisan. If Donald if what had happened wasn't an insurrection or a coup, I would have said the Democrats are full of shit and Donald Trump, all they did was march peacefully on the Capitol. But that's not what happened. But there are millions of people who weren't there who believe the Donald Trump lie because he repeats it enough. And that's the challenge we have. John, tell mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong. That's the challenge we face is parsing it correctly so people understand. We do. And that's hard to do now because... Um because of one thing that, that President Obama reportedly is trying to get through to the Biden camp and the president is, you know, you guys kind of shrug off or dismiss Fox News and that conservative media ecosystem. But but it's it's a tool and it it's very effective and um and, and Trump uses it and you guys need to get serious about how to start combating it. And I it, that's hard for us um, in, in trying to put the proper context, as, as you say, Brian, and trying to parse this out because conservative media, it, it, it sometimes feels like, you know, it doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't matter how much we parse it out or deep fried in context, as I always say, um, because conservative media is just going to spin it. And, and that segment of the population is ingesting something completely different than what Brian or myself or Politico or The Hill uh, might have published. And I don't have the answer for that because con that conservative media is so powerful and influential for half the country. 
Okay. Yeah. I uh, guess uh, I guess the last question I have on this before we turn to the next topic, Brian, is do to John's point of and your point, Brian, that we cover what is new, not rehash old matters. If and when um, Trump becomes a Republican nominee, and the and the 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 campaign is joined, it is Biden, it is Trump. I know Brian, you don't think that that will be the case, but this in my hypothetical, it's Biden versus Trump. Then do we can we expect the media to say to Trump, and can we be reporting what will your second term? look like so this future looking thing and now he's already said he's going to drill 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 and and close the border of course the reporting is that under the biden administration we're doing more drilling than we ever have under any yeah. other previous administration yeah. so i don't know what he's talking about except maybe he's going to open up fields in alaska that have been protected by biden but biden is drilling 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 and now what we'll talk about later in the program they're talking about um, uh, more um, severe immigration restrictions. So what, Donald Trump, besides those two talking points, is it that we can expect from your second term? What does it mean to be a dictator for one day? What what What's your plan? When yeah. that happens, do the equities change? Does Is Biden sort of counting on once he's asked, what does your second term mean? What is your second term platform? People start thinking like, oh, my God, and um, begin to think more um, cautiously about a second Trump term. Is that where the Biden strategists are? Yeah. 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 And then now with that being said, speaking of the Biden strategy. Yeah, that's the strategy. And I think that's a hell of a gamble. I think it's a huge gamble. I think it's a horrible gamble. I, I think he, he has spent his time over the last four years doing the job and not telling us that what it is exactly that he's doing. And the, the oxygen has been taken up in the room by Donald Trump, who doesn't yeah. mind with the disinformation. I think this is the worst administration I've ever covered when it comes to communicating what it is that they've done. Yes. Yeah. I, let's only, I wanted to jump in here on the media. I, you know, I, I, I'm not crazy about defending our colleagues, but this kind of reminds me of um, a, a group of, of my friends uh, text pretty regularly and some former reporters in that group. And, you know, one of them said uh, the other day that, you know, well, if Trump says it, it'll be in all the media. Well, I and then, you know, Michael's question, like, how's the media going to do this differently? I have to I, I kind of I, I definitely have to push back on that because. My answer is, you know, it's just like when when the when the head coach or the defensive coordinator is complaining about, you know, how the team is covered and and they're five and five and eleven, stop the other team. And that's my answer here. Why is it on us? Run a better campaign. You know, Hillary Hillary, you know, I the the former friends of mine and and folks along the way have gotten really offended when I've said this over the years. You know, Hillary could have gone to Wisconsin and Michigan. Nobody was stopping her. I agree with you. Run a better campaign. Stop the other guy. Keep him out of the end zone. I don't think it's on us to keep Trump out of the end zone. That's on Joe Biden. Yeah. And and by the way, that, that, you know, it's like I've said before, two parties in this country. One has no heart and one has no head. But it is on us to ask both. It, it is on us to ask tough questions of both candidates and both campaigns. Don't get me wrong. No, Don't I agree with that. We're no, we, we feel in I that. I do think I do think some people on the left view us as some kind of last line of defense, and I'm not sure that's that's so our. So does fault. the right, and and in uh, look, in, in as much as we're there to provide vetted factual information, they're both right. But that doesn't mean that you're not right when you say it's up to them to put the ball across the the goal line. They blame us for George Santos, right? They, there were a lot of people who said, well, the media didn't cover it. Well, there was one newspaper that covered it. And guess what? There was a Democrat who ran against him. What are you blaming us for? You had a Democrat. Why wasn't he out there shouting about Santos at the top of his lungs? That's on them. The information was there. We provided it. They didn't amplify it. We're going to take a short. We got to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about one scandal that could hurt the Biden administration. So stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at Substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, with the uh, weekly edition of Just Ask the Press, where we take a look at the week in review. And uh, right now, John, I, you know, there is something that did happen this week uh, in the Biden administration that was a cause for concern. And uh, apparently it took a while for the president to know that one of the guys working for him that he needed to contact and be in touch with was in the hospital. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, yeah, something happened in the Biden administration. And uh, for some reason, no one told the Biden administration that it was happening. <laughs> it's just remarkable. Uh, they can't communicate. They have trouble communicating their message externally. Turns out they can't even they, they can't even uh, communicate personnel serious personnel matters internally. And so what we learned this week was Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was hospitalized. And we learned this morning via uh, great reporting by NBC News that he was he has been in, at it's unclear if he's still in the intensive care unit, but we know he did spend three or four days in the ICU around New Year's Day and was incapacitated at times at Walter Reed Medical Center um, in Bethesda, Maryland, and um, the White House was not aware that the Secretary of Defense was in the hospital, number one. He had an elected surgery, then he had some complications, um, and was in the ICU and at times incapacitated. Deputy Defense Secretary, this is according, I believe, to the Washington Post, Deputy Defense Secretary Catherine Hicks um, who I've talked to a lot over the years from when I covered defense, and she's a very qualified person. She could one day be the first female defense secretary. Who knows? But she's on vacation in Puerto Rico, and she's making some decisions. She is periodically performing the job of secretary of defense, which, well, there's a process in place for that to occur, and, and you know that was followed. But Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, wasn't informed. He found out Thursday, and he then informed President Biden. So you have you have a lot of questions out of this, you know. And Austin was a he was a general. He's a career military guy. His whole adult life has been the chain of command, and he gets sick, and you know, hope he recovers fully and everything. But the chain of command broke down last week, and at a time where. You know, we're conducting drone strikes in Baghdad and maybe other places. Who approved that? Who approved that strike in Baghdad? Was that Kath Hicks? Was that a possibly medicated Lloyd Austin? Who, yeah. Was it Jake Sullivan? Was it the president himself? And, you know, it, did the president not ask, has Secretary Austin signed off on this? Is everybody on board? So there are a lot of questions coming out of this. And can Austin continue in the job? Can you get anyone confirmed in an election year? It's a national security job, I know, but everything's politicized. I have a golf tournament on. You know, this golf tournament could get politicized in, in about 10 minutes in America these days. So can can you get someone confirmed to be Secretary of Defense if, and I don't want this by any means, I think Lloyd Austin's had a pretty good run as Defense Secretary, but if he if he's too ill and he needs to step away to focus on his health, can you get someone confirmed? And by the way, we have all these proxy wars. Uh, the Middle East is getting more and more dicey. We're drone striking targets. And by the way, when you strike a target in another country, you're violating their sovereignty. So, you know, there's that. So the <laughs> yeah. defense secretary no. needs to be, he needs to be in the loop. He needs to be briefing the president. He needs to be in touch with the White House. And it just stopped. And, you know, the chain of command is something. Are they going to use this in a campaign, though? Is this a matter? Is it a nuance or is it is it substantive? 
it's probably nuanced. When when I learned of the news, um, I, I I thought it might be a bigger deal. Um, it doesn't seem to be to it doesn't seem to have um, the kind of legs that I suspected it might last night. But when Donald Trump back in Iowa gets in front of an open mic, yeah, there you go. You know, this could come back. Trump could say, you know, the guy, you know, Biden. He he did he did this Friday night. You know, he he. He walks around the stage and imitates Biden, who does after events, and he gives a speech, and Biden will turn around, and he's not sure, you know, where he's supposed to go to exit the venue, and Trump makes fun of him as evidence that, you know, he's not all there, he's 81, he's lost 10 steps mentally. So, I mean, Trump could could put those two together and say, the guy can't get off the stage, and he doesn't even know that his defense secretary is in the hospital in the ICU. So... Trump could use this. It's up to the Trump campaign. He, They could use this. They could use the divisions between the Biden and Obama camps. And Trump could start talking about that. He could weaponize that. So if, if Trump gets a hold of this, yeah, absolutely, it could become yeah. a campaign issue. There you go. Well, Trump's got a lot more to get a hold of this week, uh, Michael, doesn't he? I mean, we're going to take a look. The immunity argument is heard in court on Tuesday, and the Supreme Court is going to take up the Trump ballot case. Unload that for us. <laughs> well, but let me just answer one of the questions that John asked, which was, who authorized those strikes? And I just want to say, breaking news on your show, I did. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Lloyd was was ill. They called. I said, I don't I really have time, but if you think it's necessary, go for Do it. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you heard it here first, folks. I I hear you. I hear your point on this. And I should have been more forthcoming. But I I was busy. I had stuff I had to do. (laughs) You had to go to Whole Foods. I had to go to Whole Foods. But I did. I did. I did authorize the strikes. Wow. I I have some regrets. Let me say I have some regrets about it. But I I did. I did authorize the regrets. Now, on, on the question of the upcoming argument in the court of appeals on immunity what this is about is in a nutshell uh the follow-on to a case which was called nixon versus fitzgerald which was a 1982 case in which the president nixon was granted presidential immunity from a civil lawsuit for damages stemming stemming from work in his official capacity as president. And what the court said, Supreme Court said in that case was that even if it's in the outer boundaries of presidential official duties, it's covered and he's immune. And that's been the law uh, of the land since 82. What has never been understood is does that same notion of immunity from criminal charges also apply. So if you're the president of the United States and you're acting in the outer boundaries, but still within your official duties, and you do something which is a criminal law violation, are you immune from prosecution? Trump argues, yes, by extension of Nixon versus Fitzgerald's civil immunity, I and all future presidents should be immune from criminal prosecution if it's within the outer boundaries of our official duties or within our official duties, even if it's the outer boundaries of it. And the court has never undertaken an analysis of that. And that's what they will do on Tuesday, principally. There's another argument about double jeopardy and whether or not the president uh, is immune from prosecution because he was acquitted um, in his impeachment. But the more important, I think, um, argument, the more important aspect of the argument is this question of criminal law immunity. And, you know, no one knows the answer, but I think the consensus among uh, people who are studying this is that it's an absurd proposition to say that the president of the United States can commit a crime and be immune from it because it's in his official duties. The, the, you know, the retort to it is what official duties allow for criminal conduct, right? For a person who is sworn to uphold 
the Constitution and um, to make safe the, the execution of the laws of the United States, how is it even logical that you could engage in criminal conduct and have that be part of your official duties? Now, I think you could posit a possibility of you conduct um, a strike, a targeted strike against Osama bin Laden. And the International Court of Human Rights or Criminal Justice something says that that's a, a, a war crime. And so you can create it, you can construct a narrative where a criminal act by international law is undertaken and maybe the person can be immune from that. But when it's a violation of U.S. statutory law, as would be the case in Trump, uh, it's hard to figure out how the court says that you can be immune for criminal activity because the consequences of it, you know, sort of the cascading um, slippery slope of this is a president in in the you know waning days of his or her administration, week to go, so it's too too little time to do a impeachment. Decides to engage in all sorts of corrupt uh, behavior, and and then they get to turn off the lights at the end of their administration and be held harmless criminally for 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 that. Uh, it, Jack Smith. In in his um, subjects, man. in his brief, said, "Let's talk about the absurdity of this." And he gives examples. He as example, he said, "If it were true that you were immune, the president could order the National Guard to murder his critics, sell nuclear secrets to a foreign adversary, or direct the FBI to director to plant incriminating evidence on a political enemy." That would be by Jack Smith's account, lawful if criminal immunity is is granted. And he said it would undermine um, public confidence in the rule of law and criminal accountability. And that's where we are, um, Brian. That's where we'll, that's where, where we will turn out. Now, the thing do you to think keep it's going to be, about I this, mean, my question wait, about it is, do you think it's going to be a hard, I mean, I hear well, you. I hear Smith. Do you think this is going to take a long time for the Supreme Court to to rule on this? Is it something that I mean they've agreed to hear the case, but um, I, I mean, well, so let it, me give you an answer to 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 your question um, by way of possible um, indication of how a court might determine. Is remember that Mark Meadows was charged with a crime in state court in Georgia. Yes, He wanted to move the case to the federal court, arguing that if he were in federal court, he would have the defense of immunity, that he himself, in respect of the events of January 6th, was acting within his official capacity as the White House chief of staff. And the, this same court of appeals said, no, that what, what you were doing in relationship to January 6th does not fall within the scope of your official duties. That is not um, correct. And therefore, we deny your request to move to federal court. We deny, essentially, your immunity argument. So if it's a, a sign, the court seems to be, be looking skeptically on, on this argument. But time will tell. Yeah, well, what about in the... the um... The ballot case, uh, former federal judge Michael Ludig and others have already have argued that, you know, it, it it's pretty good that it, it's a slam dunk deal that Donald Trump is, you know, violated the 14th Amendment. But it, it doesn't appear to be to me and and you and others. It's not that clear cut, is it? Well, it's complicated, as they say, the the question on the ballot um, question. The 14th Amendment, Section 3, says that if you've engaged in insurrection or aided it and abetted it, you can't hold office. That was passed to keep Confederates out of um, returning to the Union and retaking their old seats, which they ended up doing because Andrew Johnson 
pardoned them all under right. the Amnesty Act. So they all came back and were suffering the consequences of, of that, that today. <laughs> but so that was the that was the history of the passage of this thing. And so Trump raises complicated legal questions. The first he says, and the district court in Colorado agreed with him that the that section three of the 14th Amendment does not apply to the office of the president. That the president is not an officer of the United States government. He's somewhat singularly different. Yeah. And therefore this doesn't apply. Now the district court who you know engaged in um extensive hearings on this and wrote a, a learned opinion agreed saying it does not apply to the office of the president the colorado court of appeals disagreed with that said absolutely it it does uh, apply to the president so but the first question then in this 14th amendment case that the supreme court has just agreed to hear could be does the 14th amendment section 3 apply to the president if the answer is um no then case dismissed. Colorado's uh, decision is vacated and Trump is on the ballot. If the court says it does apply to the president, then you get to the second question, which is, well, if it does apply to the president, did Congress have to pass laws enabling legislation to give it effect? Or is it, in the language of the law, self-executing? Meaning right. Congress didn't need to pass any laws to give it effect. Each state could pass its own laws to give effect to this section. And right now, there is no congressional legislation on the civil side. There is on the criminal side. Remember, there's a right. insurrection statute, which governs the policies and practices around and an analyzing whether someone engaged in insurrection, but not on the civil side. So right now, each state is interpreting Section 3 as they see fit. And Michigan said... Uh, no, he can be on the ballot. And California said, no, he can be on the ballot. And Colorado said he can't be on the ballot. And Maine said he can't be on the ballot. And so the Supreme Court has got to decide, is this Section 3 self-executing? Can states do it, you know, sort of one-off in this patchwork sort of way? Or did Congress need to pass implementing legislation? And if Congress needed to pass implementing legislation and it didn't, case dismissed and Trump is on the ballot. And remember, after January 6th, one of the things that was recommended by the January 6th committee was pass this type of implementing legislation. And the House had a bill to to, to do exactly that, but it didn't go anywhere. Um, yep. So so then the question becomes, Brian, on this cascading scale, does it apply to the president? Say they say yes. Does, does Congress need to pass implementing legislation? No, they did not. All right. Well, then what? Then was Trump afforded due process in Maine and Colorado? Were those hearings good enough for due process? If the answer is yes, then he's then their decisions will stand. If the answer is no, um, then they're going to get sent back and do new hearings. But if they say yes, the Colorado decisions were uh, was was good. He had he had due process, and the, I don't think the court is going to decide whether or not. Trump engaged in an insurrection um, or not. I think that they're not going to get to that part of the of the decision. I think they'll do it on some sort of procedural grounds. But there's an interesting, and the last thing I'll say in my filibuster here, is that section, the 14th Amendment Section 3 says a person is disqualified from holding office if they've engaged in insurrection. What Trump is arguing in his briefs is well, it doesn't say anything about running for that office. So I can't hold it if I'm convicted of insurrection or found to have engaged in insurrection, but I can still run for the office. And people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. If you can't hold the office, how can you run for the office? Well, there's an escape clause, which is that if two-thirds of both houses of Congress remove the qualification, disqualification, then that office holder is allowed to, then that office seeker is allowed to hold office. So Trump, in theory, could run for office, he could have been found to have engaged in insurrection. So he can't hold the office unless and until Congress, by two-thirds majority in both houses, say, you know what, we're going to remove the disqualification, we're going to grant them essentially amnesty, 
and then he can't hold the office. So he says, I should be allowed to run because we <laughs> could get to a point where two thirds of both houses say, you know what, he was duly elected and we're not about to interfere with the will of the people. And so two thirds of both houses of Congress grant him amnesty and, and he's the president. So that's what he's arguing. Um, and that's all an these interesting are, argument. All that's... these are all these are all these are you know our first impression arguments. Yeah. And, and how the Supreme Court will, you know, sort it out, uh, will learn probably. I would think the argument, the oral arguments, are set for February the eighth. So a very short timetable, and I would expect that we could get it. A, a ruling in this in two or three weeks, month after that. Now, of course, that's complicating the political calendar because in Colorado, for example, um, ballots for overseas and military people have to go out at the end of January. So that's going to happen before um, the oral arguments. And then the regular printed ballots have to come out within like a week or two of that argument. And then early voting starts like January the 20th, uh, February the 28th. So what Colorado did, though, was sort of smart in the sense that they're going to leave his name on the ballot. And if he's disqualified from running, then I guess they, they'll strike his name or they'll consider him a, a write-in. I don't know what they'll do. Yeah, that... but, but, he, but he's, on the, he's on the ballot, so he can't argue um, the consequences of having been left off the ballot. He's just de determined to be unqualified, disqualified for the office. In the same way, in the same way that that John Bennett can't be president because he's under thirty five. So he, <laughs> he can't he can't he can't be president because he's oh, under thirty five. Oh. That's that's a that's disqualification. You know, so there are there are <laughs> certain disqualifications. You can't be under thirty five. You have to have been born in the United States and you have to have lived here for 14 consecutive years. And so what what the Colorado people are saying is these these are these are, you know, standards that are constitutional and we don't have a, a choice. But if a person engages in insurrection, as we uh, view the evidence, then he's off the ballot. He's disqualified just as if he was under 35. So, John, the question remains, look, with the Iowa caucuses well, now basically a week away, none of this. I think is going to matter to Trumpers. I mean, if he's on the ballot, they're going to vote for him. If if they're if Nikki Haley and and uh, uh, Ron DeSantis want to argue how bad Trump is, they're going to keep doing it. I do you see any? I mean, these are serious legal problems that the pre, the former president faces, and yet mm -hmm. it doesn't appear that it will bother anyone who wants to support Donald Trump. No, I, I think people have made their minds up. Uh, on a lot of these legal issues, um, you know, I think people, uh, a lot of his supporters, uh, think these are, pardon the pun, trumped up charges. And, um, my counter to that, and I think I've said this here is yes, but who beats 91 charges? Who beats all, who goes, who <laughs> He's goes, not 91? Neo in the matrix, baby. He's not yeah. dodging all them bullets. <laughs> who goes 91 for 91? Yeah. Know, that's so many charges. Um, so he is in deep uh, in in deep trouble here, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to be the forty seventh president. And you know, the legal challenges—that's what the justice system's there for. It definitely has a role here. Um, but I, I think Chief Justice John Roberts will look for some kind of um, some kind of mechanism to, to make the, some some of these decisions, especially like the presidential immunity decision, whether it should be on the ballot. Try to make those as close to nine to nothing as he can. Right. Uh, no dissenting opinion, for instance. Um, and, and really, you know, eight to one, maybe you lose a Clarence Thomas on, on some of this stuff. But I think there's a very good chance that, that we will see, you know, nine to nothing decisions and very tight, clean. Against Trump. Against Trump, yes. Right. Against Trump. But I do, I think that. Otherwise, will... the Supreme Court has no role in the government. I mean. I it's, think this right. I think the Supreme Court will rule that he has to be on the ballot. But I don't I think they will I think Michael alluded to this. They'll they'll try to sidestep the question on insurrection and not go there. 
Oh, so, so you, oh, you think they'll they'll let him be on the ballot, but you don't think they'll take up the the um the ballot about him being an insurrectionist. Correct. It'll be one of these um one of these sidestepping decisions where they they rule on the crux of it, but they don't get into some of the more politicized aspects of the case. And I think on the immunity, I think it'll be nine nothing or eight to one yeah, against I Donald do. Trump. Yeah, I, I do too. I agree with that. Otherwise, I uh, like I said, I just don't think that the Supreme Court is going to vote to end their uh, influence in government. No, I, I don't. <laughs> I think you're right about that. <laughs> so we're we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at the crisis on the U.S. southern border. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, Independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. So as we wrap up this week, uh, the first week of the new year, once again, Happy New Year to all you guys. And uh, Happy New Year and Happy Birthday today to our, our producer, Zachary. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, the southern border. And the U.S. government has finally decided that there is a crisis on the U.S. southern border. Uh, there was an article in Sunday's uh, Washington Post, New York Times, both of them about it. Uh, I'll give you a, a chance to unpack that a little bit, Michael, because you brought it up. Well, there is this tension between the Democrats and the Republicans or between the Biden White House and Republicans mm -hmm. about funding for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. The, the administration wants funding and Congress is holding that funding hostage to tougher border security measures. And it seems, given the incredible influx of people to the borders, that the Biden administration, sort of against the best judgment of the, the more liberal faction of the Democratic Party, seems to be willing to reach an agreement um, about it. The, the sticking point seems to be this question of parole, parole, which is that process by which they allow people to sort of bypass the ordinary immigration processes to come in sort of under sort of emergency circumstances. People from Afghanistan and Iraq who cooperated with us served as translators and, and then were brought in uh, under the parole system during the Second World War. Many uh, Jewish scholars and religious leaders were brought in under the parole system. And the Biden administration has, like many other administrations, been using the parole system as they um, feel is in the country's best interest, or perhaps cynically in their, their own political best interest. And that still remains a bit of the sticking point, which is to limit the power of the president on the question of parole. The other stuff um, seems more likely to be agreeable, an agreement reachable between the parties on exclusions and um, picking people out and stuff like that. So we'll see whether they can reach an agreement on this parole issue. But I think the Biden administration has come to the realization that the border is in crisis and they're on the losing end of public opinion about what to do about this. I think the last poll I saw was Even that, though they proposed legislation and the Republicans bounced it. Yes, of course. There's, <laughs> there's, there's no absence of hypocrisy around uh, these, these issues. But I thought the last poll I saw was that about 65% of the American population thought that there is a crisis 
at our our borders and, and that doing we had to it. restrict entry um into the united states way too many canadians coming into detroit so uh, yeah. john the, i guess the question for me is this isn't anything more than look this is actually how government works and biden has said this a couple of times and so have many others not just biden but you know it's the art of half a loaf you get a little bit of what you want everybody doesn't get everything that they want but they move together to get something that everyone wants so mm -hmm. is it's is it now a weakness to be to uh, conduct business as it once was conducted? I think it is, and I don't think this is. Yeah, I, I, I don't. There are a lot of reasons that that a border and immigration deal um, could come together as soon as this week, and and then the Senate, you know, next week or the week after, the Senate passes what will be a deal between the Biden White House, Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans. And, you know, I would guess it gets around 70, 73 votes in the Senate. But the House position is much different on this. House Republicans, um, you know, they say it's their bill, H.R. 2, or nothing. And they look at these bipartisan talks in the Senate very skeptically um, you know, Mike Johnson has given no indication that he would even bring a Senate bill, a Senate passed bill to the House floor. And, you know, you have House Republicans were on some of the Sunday shows this morning uh, talking about, you know, we need to 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 act and, and pass solutions for the American people. But that's hard to do. To your point, Brian, that's hard to do when your position is my bill or no bill, my bill or no bill, my way or the highway. Right. And that has been the House Republican position, especially since Mike Johnson uh, took over for speaker, took over as speaker for first time I'm saying this now, former Congressman Kevin McCarthy. Um, <laughs> does, so it, I don't, does it feel good saying it? <laughs> I don't know if it feels uh, good or bad. I, I had, uh, I had several, um, several run-ins as reporters often do. Uh, with leadership with with Mr. McCarthy and um that's a whole other podcast. So so this becomes a bit of a messaging bill in the Senate and you know there's a lot of reasons for this to come together this month sometime this month in the Senate. Um there's there are a lot of there are going to be competitive Senate races for incumbent Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. So those folks will get to say I helped work out you know, the first bipartisan immigration bill since 2013. There's a big crisis. You know, members of both parties, polls show, are, are very worried about uh, the migrant crisis. So, you know, they'll get to say, well, I voted for it and, and I helped uh, write it and I can't control what the House does. And and Joe Biden gets to say, um, he gets to say, you know, me and my team, uh, worked with Senate Republicans. We we passed a bipartisan deal in the Senate, and and Donald Trump's lackeys in the House, including Mike Johnson, wouldn't even bring it to a vote. So there's a lot of a lot of incentive to get this done on the Senate side, but I I just don't see it going anywhere. It it feels like it's dead on arrival. As as soon as they gavel the vote in the Senate, um, you know the the bill's not going anywhere else. So. You know, senators do have to try because they are in the business, allegedly, of solving problems. Um, but the House right now is just it's it's the chamber where legislation goes to die. And Donald Trump is going to egg that on Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump, he's talking about immigration again. Uh, I'll have a piece Tuesday morning on rollcall.com. How's that for a shameless plug diving into this? how Trump is back on the immigration uh, message and he he veered off that in 2020. He got distracted by COVID and other things, but he's back on it in a big way. That's a problem for Joe Biden. Yeah, I'll end it with this. You know, I, I have seen crisis on the border since the 70s and the 80s when I first started covering the southern border. And I have seen both parties we're now paying the price for both parties over the last 40 years failing to deal with the situation on the border. And they both have a lot, a lot of blame, 50% each side, as far as I'm concerned. I know that 
they don't, you know, the even-handed people who say, you know, the whataboutism. But look, man, both both of these uh, administrations going back to Reagan, who proposed a pathway to citizenship uh, and a way to deal with uh, immigration problem, they had a, a solution then, and Congress couldn't pass anything then, and they can't now. So I, with you, I don't see anything happening. I haven't seen anything for 40 years. I'm not going to see anything <laughs> in the next month. And I mean, well, only if their backs are up against the wall. And even then, and even I, then. Yes. I go back to the 2013, again, a bipartisan Senate bill. And uh, former Senator Bob Corker was very involved in helping negotiate that. And as he pointed out to a group of us, um, after John Boehner was in the Republican Speaker of the House, similar situation. He, Boehner was constantly being blitzed by his con most conservative faction. And as Corker told me, we had so many goodies in this bill for everybody, meaning vehicles and drones and right. all this stuff that is built all across the country or part of it is built. There, that It was also a jobs bill. And Boehner couldn't even bring it to the floor. And Corker told me and others, if we can't pass that into law, I don't see any immigration deal. He said, because we loaded, I mean, he pulled the curtain back. He said, we purposely put all these goodies in here to try to get votes. And we couldn't, and we can't get them in the House. And on breaking news on something we just discussed a little bit earlier, when the Deputy Secretary of Defense began, began assuming some of Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's responsibilities on January 2nd, not even she knew that it was because Austin was hospitalized, according to two defense officials. And that's CNN reporting as we finish this, this morning. That's interesting and bears further uh, scrutiny. Uh, but I'm going to finish up today with asking everybody if they've got a New Year's resolution. And so uh, if you got one, Michael, but besides, you know, besides taking responsibility for the defense department is done, uh, in, any other? <laughs> well, one of my resolutions is to not do that again. They, they, they caught me at a, they caught me at a weak moment and I should have said, it's not, it's not my responsibility. And I apologize and I, and I will not, therefore, be running for um, president this year, even though I even though I'm just over 35. 35. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for my podcast a year ago or so, I interviewed um, uh, Kirsten Powers, who wrote a book called Grace. And the proposition in Grace was to give people a little bit more grace to not see the world so black and white, you know, you are right from your side and I am right from mine. We can work it out, Paul McCartney. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I'm, hoping to, I'm hoping to be able to find a little bit more grace and to sort of ratchet down the animosity um, to uh, and the arrogance to think that I, I am right, and therefore you are wrong, and that maybe there's a little bit of right and wrong in both of us. So that's that's number one. And then this coming Wednesday— Well, that'll keep you from bombing somebody, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's why I apologize to my first one. Um, and then this coming Wednesday on, on my podcast, I'm interviewing Sanjay Gupta about his book called Keep Sharp, which is a, an interesting book about— um, how to uh, sort of prevent cognitive decline, and he has a whole twelve-week program about what to what to do. And I'm going to try to do as much of it as I can. Listen and pass along the because I cannot afford any further cognitive decline, as your listening audience well knows. And I have no cognitive ability either, so maybe I'll. I'll take that on. John, how about you, brother? You, you got a New Year's resolution? You know, I'm, I've never been a big uh, resolution guy. And this, uh, given what we do and what this year uh, will likely bring, it seems like a, a bad year to start making them now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like the, the scene in Airplane. I expect the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, I, I for my podcast, my... John, I interviewed 
I interviewed the Zuckers. Um, oh, there you go. Uh, about the writing of that of that um, tele that screenplay. So if you want to know about that line and other things, you can listen to that. They, they were go. great. That was a great interview. Those guys were great. I have to look that up. Yeah. One thing that I, that one goal, if it's not a resolution, I have set for myself in thinking about how crazy these days will get as as we get deeper into this election cycle is um, I would like to spend more time in the kitchen. I enjoy cooking. And that is a way to wind down, I found, uh, at the end of the day. So I guess that's mine. Well, and mine's going to be, I just, I, I, I try to take every day for a little bit of peace and calm because yeah. it's the next year, is this coming year. I mean, every time Michael's in charge of the Defense Department, we have troubles. So I, I want him to stop calling Michael up, and and maybe, 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 you know, it, it just gets a little more peaceful towards the end of the year. Let's I mean, see. this guy, this guy Zeldin, you know, he makes he makes Obama look like he's never seen a drone. Well, that's exactly. right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, Michael Zeldin, the pacifist. Let's I've see. got I've got so many grudges that I'm trying to <laughs> to reconcile. But you know, it's interesting um, uh, that you say, John, that you find relaxation in in the kitchen. As my wife and I are working our way, belatedly it appears through the the TV show The Bear, which which How is, is oh, it's great. We love it, um, and it takes place in kitchens, which turn out not to be very relaxing at all although those kitchens no again um in my shameless plugging of my that said with michael zeldin podcast i just interviewed a woman jane fox is her name and we'll release the interview on thursday jane has been on and off in her life a heroin addict and she's now um, sober for a long time and one of the things that she said helped her substantially with sobriety was cooking and um she has a and she has she has a book which will we discuss called the hungry mother and it's recipes for you know sort of sobriety and how the routine of cooking was so instrumental to her uh recovery and how she's now been implementing it in recovery programs that she runs um throughout long island and and, and elsewhere it's a great book if you've got anyone who in your family is a drug or alcohol dependent person this is a this is an important book to listen to there you go for the new years this is uh, and i want to thank everybody for making us one of the top 30 podcasts and good pods uh the name of this show is just ask the question you can catch my stuff uh every week on salon.com and wherever fine books are sold, it's called uh, Shield. No, no. God, I can't even get my own book right. <laughs> Free the press. So listen, everybody, thanks. Happy New Year to everyone. I hope 2024 is much better for you than 2023. We'll be here again next week. Thanks for joining us.